Somebody told me, a yogi told me, not here on this retreat, but someone else, who had spent some time at um, the monastery in Virginia where Bhante Gunaratana lives and teaches. He's um, in his 70s now, a Sri Lankan monk, has been in the West for a long time, that when she was there with him, he had said to her, and I don't know exactly the time frame when he said this, if this still applies, but anyway, he'd said to her that um, in teaching Westerners, he found that um, so many of us had so many difficult things going on for us that he didn't even find teaching, teaching insight meditation was too hard until we had done two years of metta. Mm. <laughs> so um, I want to talk about how doing this metta helps with these things that are hard for us and just how, how the function of metta shifts us. We're all talking about the same thing, of course. This is what you were talking about last night, I believe. Um, so it's hard, you're discovering, to be a person. It's hard to be a human being and all the stuff we have to, to deal with. Ajahn Sumedho, some of you may have heard us mention Ajahn Sumedho. You may know him yourself. He is uh, also an elderly monk, one of our elders, lives in England now. Um, he says, with a big grin and a slight lisp, samsara sucks. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then we come on a retreat. And uh, when you come on a retreat, <coughs> there's um, nowhere to go. <laughs> there's no one to put any explanation about what's happening to you on. It's no one else's stuff, it's your stuff. The lights are on. You're surrounded by mirrors. We say that's like being in a ballet studio. I used to go to ballet studios as a young thing. And uh, so you get to see it all. So here you are with all of the sucky samsara stuff. And uh, it's difficult. It's not all sucky. Some of it's amazing, beautiful, lovely, sweet. But there's sure plenty of the other. It's all there. You can't have half of it, actually the eight vicissitudes, the Buddha called them. You can't have four. <laughs> and uh, another thing that happens in, in a retreat situation, any, I'm sure, kind of retreat situation, when there's trust and when there's um, quiet and friendliness, our usual guarding behavior that we don't even realize we're carrying around, our armoring, is relatively redundant. And so it kind of softens or drops, so we're even more tender. And then, right here, we're doing a meta-retreat, not just a retreat with the lights on, surrounded by mirrors, but we're doing a retreat where we're actually going right into where we store our emotional life. And so, of course, all those feelings, there they are. We're not even doing it from a point of view of spaciousness. We're actually getting up close with how we feel about things. That's the language we're learning, the language of our hearts. And so it can be tricky sometimes. So here's my favorite poem by um, my favorite poet called Hafiz, who I've mentioned to some of you already, who lived, was born in Afghanistan and um, in the 1300s. It's called Dropping Keys. The small man builds cages for everyone he knows, while the sage, who has to duck his head when the moon is low, keeps dropping keys all night long for the beautiful, rowdy prisoners. So the small man, of course, that's us, putting everything in boxes and labeling things and trying to have it all contained and known and knowable and held in, in a way, putting things in cages, this mystery of the flow of life, trying to box it in to keep ourselves apparently safe and at least life somewhat predictable, which of course it is not. While the sage, with this vastness who has to duck his head with the low moon, is dropping keys, keeps dropping keys 
not just one key once in a while, but an ongoing process of key dropping. Not taking the keys down there and unlocking and dragging out those prisoners, mind you, <laughs> but dropping keys and making it possible that the prisoners, whenever they're ready, can emerge beautiful and rowdy. And so I'll talk a little more about the rowdy ones because they're the ones that we grapple with. We actually quite like the beautiful ones and don't come to our teachers with questions about how to do that. Today a lot I was sharing with people about the rowdy prisoners, so I thought I should talk to them. So in this particularly exposing setup here, meta retreat, we discover such things as that we are um, hurting or lonely or we're so judgmental. Quite a few people today with me, I'm, I haven't asked, but I wouldn't be surprised if I wasn't the only one, just seeing they're so down on themselves, so judgmental. Yeah, pretty common thing. Or how critical we are. You know, we may not just be down on ourselves, but we just, we just things bug us or irritate us. And we're, we're trying to be lovely and loving and we're just complaining and so readily irritated. The harder ones, the shame, the fears, the anger, all of that. Anxiety, worrying, worrying. We don't like it, of course. It's, it's not pleasant to be with these things. So, one of, the, uh, one of the responses when we're confronted with these rowdy prisoners is that we, um, we don't know how to deal with it. We are trying to make it go away or trying to handle it well or trying to explain it or wishing we weren't doing it or getting frustrated because it's still happening to us or something. The state, that state of struggling, resistance, one of the aspects of it at least is the hindrance that Donald did not talk about last night. The hindrance called doubt. What am I supposed to do? How do I handle this? Why is it still happening? Maybe I should leave. Maybe this isn't the right thing. Maybe I haven't figured out what to do. Does this work for this? Why isn't it working for this? Etc. I think, in my experience, from my experience, I think that when there is a sense of doubt about anything, when I have a sense that I am doubting how it is, I, the sense of me, rallies forth to try and take care of it, to try and get rid of it or to explain it or something it. And when there isn't that hindrance of doubt, that feeling of like, what's going on? I don't know, I'm not sure. I don't rally forth to do anything about anything. Everything just is whatever it is and I don't doubt it being there. I have no contention with it being there. Its isness is acceptable in the absence of doubt. In the presence of doubt though, somehow I have to fix it. <laughs> somehow I feel that it's on my shoulders, my little shoulders, and I have got to do something, which is very burdensome feeling. You know that feeling, you're sitting there. What am I gonna do about this? What should I do? What can I do now? It's, it's hard work, it's heavy burden. Doubt's heavy, the ego's heavy. Doubt is a heavy aspect of it. So here you are with your prisoners. And because we are um, exploring and exposing in a way this tender place, this place where the feelings are coming from, it's, it's a very vulnerable, delicate exercise to open up the heart and to hold there this rowdiness. So it's a double difficulty to open up the heart's one thing, to be vulnerable and open and express yourself and feel tender is one thing. 
but to then do it in the presence of the difficult stuff that's there is another thing, extra difficult. So help. We need help. And the help we need is metta. So this talk is about how we need metta to do metta. <laughs> if we don't have metta, we cannot do this. We cannot go there because it's too much. It's too hard, too vulnerable, too sensitive, too delicate. We need lots of metta, meaning friendliness, meaning gentleness, meaning kindness, to be able to be here, to tolerate this, and to understand this, and to allow this, and to learn from this, and to release this. Rowdiness. Thich Nhat Hanh says that um, whenever we're struggling or upset in any way, metta, we need metta to hold the struggle the way we hold a crying baby. And thinking of that phrase that he said, there's a little story that I read of a woman who, um, this is a true story, she lived one time in an apartment and um, through the shared wall with the next apartment, which was not a very thick wall, um, there she could hear the family next door. And the family was a young family, young couple and their little child, young child. Not quite baby, infant, but little, little one. And uh, every night, she said, they would put their little baby to bed and then they'd leave her and go and turn on the TV and they couldn't hear that she would cry and cry and cry herself to sleep. And so this woman didn't know quite what to do, didn't want to go and call the cops on the people or go and accuse them of neglection or whatever, neglect. So she, she thought, well, if I can hear her cry, she can hear me. So she sang to her every night. And she would sing the baby to sleep. And so this little crying one has this friendly, sweet voice soothing her to sleep every night, to take away those chilly fears of loneliness. Isn't that the sweetest story? So simple. It's that soothing, friendly sweetness. That is, that's matter, absolutely. So when we have some form of metta, of which I'll talk about different kinds, some form of friendliness, we feel reassured. We feel a little safer. We feel encouraged. We feel nourished or a little easier. When we're not so easy, we are in struggle, a state of struggle, and uh, we don't like being in there, and we're spinning our wheels and in that state of doubt and all so on and so forth. If we, and when we can reassure ourselves in some way, some ways of which I'll share with you, that upset settles down. So for instance, how many of you today, in talking, you don't have to answer the question, but in talking with uh, your teachers today, for instance, or even with yourselves today, were able to shift your view of your struggle and hold it with some space or some kindness and feel that sense of relief. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A number of you. We're learning how to reassure ourselves. We're not trying to put those prisoners back in their prisons lock them up, throw away the key. They'll just keep thriving away in the dark. We're actually learning to be able to let them be here. It's not about them, it's about us being able to stay there with them, allowing them in, as it were, or up. How did the rose, another Hafiz poem, how did the rose ever open its heart and give to this world all its beauty? It felt the encouragement of light against its being. Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. We need encouragement. That's partly why we need sangha. We need company. We need to encourage ourselves. We need to find other ways that can encourage us. So um, I want to just mention how this, there's a, there's a particularly key step in the progress of our awakening. 
we, we move as we awaken from the states of confusion and anxiety and the suckiness of samsara, whatever, towards increasingly ease and freedom from struggling, awakening, love, peace, happiness, contentment. And how we do this move, there are uh, very recognizable steps along the way. And I'm going to read to you some of the words of the Buddha on one of his teachings about how we do this. I practiced, um, my last retreat was just the month of November. I, practiced, I like to practice for the month of November. I like the time of year. It's slightly pagan. It's Halloween when the goddess goes to the underworld, the earth goes to sleep, I'm a gardener, I live in the country. So I go on retreat. <laughs> this is the um, instructions from the Buddha's teaching on um, working with mindfulness of the breath. He sh shall train thus. Breathing in long, he understands, I breathe in long. Breathing out long, he understands, I breathe out long. Breathing in short, he understands, I breathe in short. Breathing out short, I understand, I breathe out short. I shall breathe in experiencing the whole body. Some people interpret that as the whole of the breath from the beginning to the middle to the end. Some people interpret it as the whole, your whole body, breathing throughout your whole body. Either translation is workable as a practice method. I shall breathe out experiencing the whole body. I shall breathe in tranquilizing the body. I shall breathe out tranquilizing the body. I shall breathe in experiencing rapture, which could also be translated and is often um, as delight, niceness, a light heart, and breathe out experiencing rapture. I shall breathe in experiencing pleasure and breathe out experiencing pleasure. I shall breathe in, ex um, breathe in experiencing the mind mental formation, and breathe out experiencing the mental formation. I'll breathe in tranquilizing the mental formation and breathe out tranquilizing the mental formation. I shall breathe in experiencing the mind and ex uh, breathe out experiencing the mind. I shall breathe in gladdening the mind and out. And breathe in steadying or collecting or concentrating the mind and breathe out concentrating the mind. And breathe in freeing the mind or liberating the mind and breathe out liberating the mind. And then the last four, breathing in, contemplating impermanence and out, contemplating the fading away and out, contemplating cessation and contemplating relinquishment. Those are the four final steps of 16 steps of practice. And the piece that I want to focus on is how when there's that reassurance, the gladdening of the mind, it says here, there is then calming. How the most efficient and effective way for the mind to calm down and relax is when it's gladdened. It's utterly powerful. Now we can calm our minds down by concentration in miscellaneous exercises. All kinds of different objects of concentration are done and are effective. But particularly using metta as the tool with which to concentrate ourselves, because it has not just its factors of words which keep the attention going, repetition, it has these qualities which they themselves are rich with reassurance. They then do the job of calming us down so effectively, so powerfully, because of their meaning because of their reassurance. So it's a, it's a very brilliant, very helpful uh, way of practicing. And I'll just add that I, in my years of experience of practicing, didn't use metta as a technique for a long time. I couldn't relate to it. I was afraid of it, really. I was afraid of looking and trying to wish myself well. I'd begin to and realize I didn't wish myself well. I actually was really on my case. I really was never ever good enough, major unworthiness. And so it was way too painful, and so I didn't. And then when I tried a little bit more and tried to find a benefactor instead of myself, 
I couldn't find a benefactor because my grandmother was really an unpleasant woman and my other one had died and my mother was pretty angry and my father was pretty silent and so on and so forth. And so that didn't work. <laughs> so I was like, I'm going to give up on that one too. And so I would give up on the things that I was offered to help me and couldn't find a way to do meta, so didn't. So my concentration for a long time was work, be a good yogi, nail down that brain and stop thinking thoughts and keep going and major striving, which works sooner or later eventually, but it takes a while. It's exhausting. <laughs> it is really beset with massive amounts of judgment and comparing and all of those things. And it was by a process of uh, trial and error with lots of error, I suppose, that allowed me to discover that um, the mind will settle down when it's more comfortable than when it's being told how to do it, you know. And, uh, and so it, the process worked over time with, in spite of myself, let's say. And I began to actually appreciate myself and like myself and relax. And with various different teachers, one of my... Uh, one of, part of the fate of my uh, practice years was that I lived where I lived, quite far away from any regular community, so I had no regular contact with any particular teacher. And so no one to kind of follow me and help me particularly. So I had to figure it out for myself. And so you go up a few blind alleys when you're trying to do it on your own like that. Um, if I had been with somebody who could have got to know me more and seen some of my tendencies, maybe that would have saved a few years. I don't know. didn't happen. I learned, on the other hand, that practice is what taught me rather than someone else's guidance. And that was a very powerful thing because it means that I totally trust the unfolding of the Dharma. If I just kept on doing it and doing it, sooner or later I would learn and learn, and which is what has happened. And so my teacher definitely is the Dharma. That's where my refuge is. It could have been different, and who knows if it would have been better or whatever. But anyway, that's how it's been for me. Nevertheless, I had learned over time, and one of the pieces I mentioned to somebody this afternoon that uh, was a, a defining moment in helping me be more metaphor was um, I spontaneously, without meaning to, found myself one day in a retreat, walking up and down in a Vipassana retreat, um, and spent the entire walking period talking to myself with a very friendly tone of voice, which was the first time in my life I'd probably ever done that. You know, I'm into my 40s by now. And, uh, and it, I was just kind of, I wasn't doing any formal phrases, intention, anything. I just was actually reassuring myself and encouraging myself. And don't be so heavy on yourself, Heather. You're okay. You know, you're a decent enough person. You've got good friends. You've got a good livelihood. You mean well. You don't cheat. You don't steal things. You know, you pay your taxes on time. It's, <laughs> give yourself a little slack. It was just that sort of tone of, it's okay. And uh, the extraordinary thing, well, first of all, that that was even possible was pretty amazing. Um, but the other thing was then when I went and sat right the next sitting, my mind was so calm. I got so quiet and so <coughs> tranquil because there was so much reassurance in that friendliness. It was my first clear lesson about the effects of metta, even though I hadn't meant to do it. It was beautiful. Um, and the other thing that was a turning point was when, and again, it was spontaneous, that's why I trust the Dharma to do it, was when uh, sooner or later at some point, quite a, you know, quite a few years into practice, but quite a long time ago now, um, I remember beginning to be conscious of the fact that the stuff, that my rowdiness that was coming up wasn't just mine, that it was happening to people all around me, most probably. If it was happening to me, Quite likely it was happening to you and you and you. Whereas before that, it was the feeling of everyone else is totally great and they're all very mellow and they're all sitting like statues and they're all calm and they know what they're doing and I'm a complete mess here. You know that feeling. <laughs> and you look around and you know, you think it's all about you and all of poor you. At some point it happened that it became, it wasn't about me. It was about humanity and how we struggle. And somehow I was not so drowning. That spaciousness was so reassuring. It wasn't so personal. Another little piece to mention for some of you who like 
and are more familiar with the, um, the, the structure of the teachings of the Buddha, there is this lovely teaching, one of my favorites, um, where this whole uh, shift is explicitly described. And it's in the, uh, the list of the seven factors of awakening, which are mindfulness, which means you better be, at least know what you're doing or forget the whole deal, you may as well go home now. So mindfulness is sort of like the given. And then there are three and three of these other six. And the first three in the order that they are developed are um, interest or curiosity. It's often called investigation. That reminds me of May Gray with his big looking glass, which is a little too hard work. I like the word wonder, like a child is fascinated and delighted in things. So curious without looking for answers interest or wonder. The next one is energy, which often is translated as effort, which for a striver is not a good translation. I like the translation of Stephen Batchelor's, which is enthusiasm, which is much more enjoyable. Um, and then the next one is pity or rapture or delight, which for some reason for many years I completely blanked out on. And then calm, capacity, tranquility, and then concentration, the collectedness of the mind, and then equanimity. So investigation, enthusiasm, and, and delight are called energizing, the energizing three, and calm, concentration, and equanimity are the calming or soothing three. The key, th and I have understood that and worked with that and like that whole thing, and when you get very calm, you can sink into sleep easily, and the, the hindrance sloth and torpor can emerge when you get very, very calm and drift off. And if there's a lot of energy and enthusiasm and interest, you can get so into it that you can start getting all agitated and restless and busy, and you need calming, so you can go into that hindrance. But the piece that I missed was the, this fabulously important step which is when you're interested in something and you get enthusiastic about it, you actually start enjoying it. And it gets to be quite delightful. And it's the delightfulness that's nourishing the spirit that allows it to relax and calm down and go into tranquility. And somehow I was unworthy of the pleasure or something and just was into doing it and then trying to get calm. <laughs> and it took me a while to learn that actually you need to gladden yourself lighten yourself, encourage yourself, sing to yourself, meta yourself, so that the, the mind is then easy to relax, to go into tranquility and concentration. So that the development then, when I'm going to go back to the Anapanasati steps that I read to you early, are, in, if you take those 16 steps into three, know the mind, be mindful and start looking at how it's working. Train the mind and release the mind. But the train the mind is two steps. Gladden the mind and calm the mind. And those are those two steps that go from PT, number four in the seven factors, to Pasadi, which is tranquility, step number five. First we gladden and then the mind will calm. This is metta. Metta is this gladdening principle. Metta is this nourishment. It is the reassurance. It's the inspiration. It's the voice which says, of course you feel like that. Who wouldn't feel like that? You're exhausted. You've just been through blah, 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 blah. You're sensitive. You feel like that. If I had been through the same things you've been through and I'd had the same life you'd had and I just ate for lunch what you ate for lunch, I'd feel the same. <laughs> of course. That's the truth and that's friendly. And it's reassuring. And then when we feel that, we can go, oh, it's okay, I'm okay. I don't have to doubt and try and fix the world. I can handle that. key, key step in the whole progress of our becoming free. During my piano recital, I was on stage. This is from the list of quotes 
um, that Donald was reading last night, the way young children have a way of expressing love. This is from Cindy, and she's eight years old. During my piano recital, I was on a stage, and I was scared. I looked at all the people watching me, and I saw my daddy waving and smiling. He was the only one doing that, so I wasn't scared anymore. <laughs> Pretty simple. So whenever we can remember in any way, and now I'm going to list a few of these ways, to encourage ourselves, we will notice that sense of relief. That sense of relief, which includes breathing more easily, the shoulders going down, that often tears, is like, oh. Often it's that, of course, feeling. That feeling is the feeling of liberation whether it's a tiny moment or whether it's a major spiritual opening or call it what you like, the feeling is relief. The relief is me having to do something and when it releases, it's okay. Get very familiar with that feeling because we have them, many of them, all the time. That is a moment of the, of the most important in our lives. It isn't, liberation isn't bells and whistles and angels, it's relief. Like you have to, at that moment you realize you don't have to do anything about anything. It's just as it is, this is how it is. It's quiet, it's, it's a relief. The sure heart's release is what the Buddha calls it. And he actually says, everything I teach is to lead to that. And if you experience that, then you know what you've heard is my teaching. And if what you've heard doesn't lead to that, then it's not my teaching, he said. That feeling, that's what he's talking about. So there are miscellaneous ways that metta manifests in the way of encouragement and kindness. And I'm going to just list a few because we need to learn these. Not in any order of preference. is whatever at the moment you can think of to actually reassure you, feed you. One of my complete favorites is um, the beauty of nature. I have all kinds of stories. I don't know whether to tell you my beautiful nature stories. I told this story last year because it was so profound for me and it had happened on a retreat that I'd just come from the previous November a year ago, but I'll tell it to you because it was exquisite. Um, I was at Gaia House, which is where I like to practice. And uh, has anybody been to Gaia House to practice there? Anybody know it? Nobody knows it. It's this Georgian house in Devonshire in England. And because I grew up in England, I like the whole scene. I like the countryside and the sheep and the cows and the parsnips and the marmite and the cold stone floors and the whole thing. <laughs> Very familiar. And the pathetic showers and the toilets that don't flush. And anyway, we'll have to take that out of the tape. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was walking in the afternoon and it was late November so it was getting on for midwinter time and uh, I was coming back across the fields the green fields with the cows the green grass of England you know thick green and the hills sort of rolling hills and I came up over the rise of the hill so, sort of to the height of the hill and the land's falling away in front of you and there's hills and more hills and in the distances dart more and, and the sun is low in the sky, golden and setting and uh, up to my left is rising the full moon and the cows are blowing steam because it's getting chilly in the afternoon and as I come to the height of land and start looking down over this rolling green field the whole field is completely golden, shining like as if the moon was on the sea with cobwebs. And every single strand of cobweb was reflecting the setting sun. But the whole thing was swathed in gold. It was completely covered with cobwebs. I, was co I couldn't believe how many cobwebs there had to be there. And the cows were in that field eating, so the cobwebs were being built like all the time because they were being destroyed all the time. 
And when I looked more closely with my quiet mind, because I had been practicing for some time, I could see that the only cobwebs which were reflecting the sun were the ones running completely horizontal to the sun. And all the other millions of cobwebs at different angles weren't reflecting the sun. So there were millions more than I even thought in the first instance. And it was unbelievable. unbelievable. And it was just like such a surprise and so exquisite. And I was just delighted by that. And uh, so I went back and had my ritual cup of tea, which I have to have every day at 4 o'clock since I was 11. And um, they start training you at boarding schools in England to drink tea at 4 o'clock. And, uh, and then I practiced. And the same experience as the time before when I was being friendly to myself, my mind was so delighted and I was so peaceful and felt so nourished by this beauty that I just was completely peaceful. My mind was so tranquil. It was so obvious that that was a connection. John Keats says this, A thing of beauty is a joy forever. Its loveliness increases. It will never pass into nothingness, but still will keep a bower quiet for us and a sleep full of sweet dreams and health and quiet breathing. And Blaise Pascal, French philosopher, a couple of hundred years ago, said, whenever you're troubled, place something beautiful in your heart. That reminds me of a tiny story that I heard years and years ago now, because it's been 12 or 14 years. There was a terrible earthquake in Kobe in Japan, like 14 years ago or something. I don't remember now, but long ago. And one thing that we were told, um, and we used to mention this, but I'd forgotten it till this moment, was that um, a lot of people were, um, had no homes, were homeless, and were sleeping in gymnasiums and public places and stuff. And uh, a lot of people, and this is so Japanese, and people even in the West sent money to help this, but a lot of people would, would send flowers to the gymnasiums. And people would go and take a flower and go and lie down with the flower to reassure themselves because they were so distraught from this tragedy and being, you know, homeless and who knows what they'd lost and who they'd lost. So they would sleep with a flower for reassurance. It's such a beautiful thing. I'm a gardener, you can tell. <laughs> so, um, beauty. Music. Anything lovely. Uh, and then in the same vein, in general, gratitude. Do a little gratitude practice, like just count your blessings. It's very, it's, it's like, oh yes, so I do have rowdy prisoners and I just got well fed today and uh, it's warm here and everyone's friendly here and there's a lot. As well as the rowdiness, there's beauty. And so let yourself be nourished by some of that. Many different ways to do that. Look for the good. Then there's another variation on a theme which the Buddha recommended, which is not uh, traditional in our Judeo-Christian, Victorian cultural heritage, which is to um, appreciate your own virtue. It tends to be, you know, we're discouraged from don't get too proud now, you know, pride comes before a fall and all that. <laughs> but actually, if you can appreciate your goodness, not unlike what was happening when I was doing my little you know, befriending myself that time. Look at your goodness. Look at your decency. Look at your morality. Look at your kindness. You're trustworthy. You have friends who trust you. You're a decent person. There is such beauty in our hearts. Look at that. The qualities that are fine in you. It isn't just blessings. You know, you may be lucky that you're healthy or not so lucky if you're not so healthy, but you have actually chosen and made moral choices in your life. And they are very, very reassuring when you reflect on them. And the Buddha recommended we actually do this regularly. Look at your own virtue. I really encourage you to do that. I kind of have said that a few times when introducing metta, the beginning of a period, and you're working with yourself. Think of the things about you that you appreciate. It's like that. And it really does make you just feel like, you know, I'm rowdy prisoners and all, I'm okay, <laughs> you know. I'm honorable. I'm worthy of respect and worthy of care and, yeah. I'm a sacred one too. 
And for some, I love this too, the refuges. The refuges are nourishment. One of the things I describe sometimes when I'm introducing the refuges at the beginning of a retreat is I say, it's a hard journey, you're going on a journey, and refuges are the trail mix. <laughs> Take them along with you, keep snacking on them. They keep you going, it's hard sometimes. And we need nourishing, we need to be encouraged and to keep remembering, yes, actually, my spiritual values are the most important thing in my whole life. Yes, I do believe in them. I do believe that I can become increasingly aware. That's refuge in the Buddha. Yes, I actually want to be with what's really here. I want to face these rowdy and beautiful prisoners. And then I can have some freedom to choose the way to behave instead of be run by them because I've kept them locked down and I don't even know that they're doing it. Yes, I want the truth, actually. Refuge in the Dharma. Yes, I actually love having people to go to and talk about this stuff and people around me who keeping trying along with me, keeping me on track. Refuge in the Sangha, absolutely. Rungs on my ladder. They are uplifting, nourishing, helpful, soothing. And then there's be kind. There's generosity itself. Do little nice things and you like yourself more. Pretty simple. This is what Mother Teresa says. People are often unreasonable, illogical, and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. <laughs> if you're kind, people may accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you're successful, you'll win some false friends and true enemies. Succeed anyway. If you're honest and frank, people may cheat you. Be honest and frank anyway. What you spend years building, someone could easily destroy overnight. Build anyway. If you find serenity and happiness, they may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today, people will often forget tomorrow. Do good anyway. Give the world the best you have, and it may never be enough. Give the world the best. Give the world the best you have, and it may never be enough. Give the world the best you have anyway. You see, in the final analysis, it's between you and God. It never was between you and them anyway. <laughs> <laughs> And of course, you're God, so it's between you and you. And here's a kindness competition. Some of you know this little story. There was a competition, and people had to send in the, you know, the, the description of this act of kindness. And the winner was a four-year-old boy. You know this story? Where um, he lived with his family, and the next-door neighbor, uh, neighbors were an elderly couple, and the wife died. And the old man was left bereft and would sit on his porch and cry. And one day, um, mum and little four-year-old, whatever his name was, were coming home and, uh, and the neighbor was sitting sadly on the porch. And so the little boy squirmed out of his mother's grasp and ran over to the neighbor and climbed up the steps and sat with him, climbed into his lap. <laughs> and after some minutes, the old man stopped crying. And then the little boy climbed down and ran back to his mother who was watching. And who said to him, what did you say? Like, what did you do? And he said, I didn't say anything. I just sat in his lap and helped him cry. <laughs> so you see, when we have this heart that is nourished in any of these ways, we can allow the crying. We can sit and cry with the old man or with ourselves. We can allow it. We have the space for it. We, can, we have a capacity that increases where we can be with this rowdiness. We're not trying to do anything with the rowdiness, but just let it do what it needs to do. Let it be expressed if it needs to be expressed. We don't have to get sucked into the struggle of it. We are steady. We're bigger than it. We can be kind with it. We can be kind to ourselves while we're feeling upset. We can let it come up and go through. It's, a, it's like a, a capacity to tolerate what we didn't think we could tolerate, and we were doing everything under the sun to try and not have to deal with. It's actually just much easier to just let ourselves be here. It's, so allowing is a huge aspect to letting go. 
We're just afraid, that's all. We don't think we can handle it. And our training for, you know, as long as humans have been around is to uh, have more of the pleasant and avoid the unpleasant in whatever way you can. So it goes against our wiring, so we have to practice doing it with a lot of patience and gentleness. One of the uh, phrases which we haven't mentioned, I don't even remember if it's on your sheet of alternative lists of, of phrases, is um, this, this uh, popular and lovely phrase, I love and accept myself completely just as I am. Be careful with everyone you meet, because each has been asked to carry a great burden. You're not alone in this rowdy prisoner business. In fact, Hafiz, a small section of another poem, he says, we are all trudging along with as much dignity, courage, and style as we possibly can. And when we remember that, it's like going from me and my difficult to us and our difficulty. We're all, it's hard. Samsara sucks. And when we remember that, we can say, yes, they're having a hard time. They're not just being irritating. They're actually having a hard time. And as soon as we are able to have that's an increased capacity, we're not going to then be in conflict trying to fix them or change them or correct them or judge them. It's like, yeah, they're struggling. That's why they're being so off the wall today. And just that softening, is, is we just then have a bit more space for them. And suddenly the conflict is, is lessened. There's more metta. That's exactly that story Sylvia talks about, her friend at the class, who said, when anybody says, how are you doing? And, and she says, the only response, the only true response could be is I couldn't be better. Because if I could, I would. Everyone, all the time. You would be better. If you could, you wouldn't be. You wouldn't be rowdy. <laughs> you wouldn't have rowdy prisoners if you could think yourself different. So forgiveness is really allowing. Forgiveness is just like something happened that was however awful it was, but it happened because we were both doing the best we could and we were struggling and we blew it. This person wasn't able to do anything other in that moment. And if I'd been that person, with everything going on that that person had going on, I'd be that person doing that thing. So forgiveness is, is this. It's not making it okay and saying, okay, then it's fine now, because it wasn't fine and never will be fine. But, you know, it happened. And instead of wishing it were other, I can now say it was like that and it, was, it sucked, actually. But you know what? There were all kinds of reasons why it happened. A thing that Sylvia has said a long, I heard her say long ago, I haven't heard her say for a long time, but anyway, she used to say this quite often, it may be awful, but it's lawful. <laughs> <laughs> That's a Sylvia-ism, yeah. It, it, there's some laws making it be this way. There's a lot of reasons why things are the way they are, and it's not all the way I'd like it to be. Remember you used to say that? You don't say that anymore, it's awful, but it's lawful, you do. <laughs> said it this morning, probably. <laughs> so this, this is a tricky area, and be careful. We're not submitting to the wrong. We're not condoling, condoning the wrong. We're not being run over by something that's not okay. It doesn't make us wimpy and uh, uh, participating in something that shouldn't be happening. Forgiveness is being able to say, yeah, I, I understand it happened. I understand. There was an inevitability in it, in a way. It wasn't okay. I'm not going to let it happen again if I can possibly avoid it. But there isn't, a, there isn't a wishing it were other. There isn't that argument against it having happened, in other words. It happened, and we can allow that it happened. And we can learn from it. A couple of last poems here. 
I don't know if this was a Hafiz poem or not, but if anybody knows, you can tell me. It's difficult with quotes. We're in, we, end, we have these endless quotes, and we borrow them from each other, and sometimes the author doesn't get along with the quote. So I, it says either, I think it's a Rumi or a Hafiz quote. It's called Love Does That. It's a poem. All day long, a little burrow labors, sometimes with heavy loads on her back, and sometimes just with worries about things that bother only burrows. And worries, as we know, can be more exhausting than physical labor. Once in a while, a kind monk comes to her stable and brings a pair. But more than that, he looks into the burrow's eyes and he touches her ears. And for a few seconds, the burrow is free and even seems to laugh because love does that, love frees. And this is the last one. This is Hafez. Admit something. Everyone you see, you're saying to them, love me. Of course, you don't do this out loud, otherwise someone would call the cops. Still, though, you think about this, this great pull in us to connect. Why not become the one who lives with a full moon in each eye that's always saying with that sweet moon language what every other eye in this world is dying to hear? Shall I read that one again? <laughs> Admit something. Everyone you see, you say to them, love me. <coughs> of course, you don't do this out loud, or otherwise someone would call the cops. Still, though, think about this, this great pull in us to connect. Why not become the one who lives with a full moon in each eye that's always saying with that sweet moon language what every other eye in this world is dying to hear? Thank you for listening. Let's just sit quietly with full moons in our eyes. So we'll come back in about 40 minutes and sit the last sit, which will end with some chanting.